kind of groups, wearing the right kind of clothes, or eating the right kinds of food, reading the right kinds of books, if you read, or watching the right kind of shows, all because of identity, of our desire to be seen in a certain way and to fit ourselves into a certain kind of category. And we do this when we evaluate others. Oh, he drives a he drives a Mercedes. He must be in this class of people. We size people up by the things that they wear and the personal uh, things that they want to be identified with, right? And maybe in a, in a menial way, we do this with our little stickers on our Facebook pictures, right? So I can be identified with this cause and people will know this is who I am. Jesus faced scrutiny over his identity. Now, if you recall, as we're moving through the Gospel of John, we're in chapter 7, and Jesus uh, over and over again is confronted with people who have the wrong ideas about Jesus and who he should be, of his person, of his work, of his mission. First, we, we notice that it was his brothers in the first 13 verses. They had a very different ministry method they, they wanted him to use. They wanted him to make a name for himself, to be great, to really get out there and be in, in front of the public and do wonderful works. And he said, it's not my time to be doing that. And he held himself back from going up to the feast. But then in the middle of the feast, he did go up. And when he went up, he began to teach. But there he faced the scrutiny of the authorities and the crowds over the content of his teaching. But also because he, he wasn't credentialed. He didn't go to the right seminary. He wasn't ordained in their presbytery. And they rejected his authority to declare the word of God. And now, as we come to our text today, it's the same crowd, it's the same feast of booths, it's the same Jesus, but they're puzzled over his identity. Is Jesus the Christ? Is he the Christ that was prophesied in Scripture? Is he the one that we've been waiting for, that we've been anticipating his arrival? Does he have the right origins? Did he come from the right place? And is he going to the right place? In other words, does he have the right origins and the right mission? Now, as we've moved through the Gospel of John, we've never gone very far from John's stated purpose. In chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These things, that is, the Gospel, is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Well, that's my purpose too. That's my goal this morning in this sermon, is just that you would see that Jesus is the Christ. And that you would believe and have life in his name. Amen. Saints, let's stand together as we read from John chapter 7, beginning at verse 25, which is printed in your bulletin. We stand out of reverence for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. 
Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for your son Jesus who was sent by you to reveal you to us so that we may know you, so that in Christ we may have life. Father, as we come and we see Jesus, open our eyes to behold and see that he is indeed the Christ sent from the Father for the purpose of saving the world. Open our eyes that we may behold wonders out of this portion of your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now this opens on a new scene, same setting. It's the Feast of Booths, but the scene is a little different. And the reason is we have a new crowd, a new response from a different group of people. We've already had word from the authorities. We've already heard from his brothers. We've heard something from the crowd, but now we hear something from the people of Jerusalem. These are the locals. These are the ones who are, they live in Jerusalem all the time. They're not the pilgrims that come up once a year. They reside in Jerusalem. And there's a little air of uh, uh, pride to their discussion. You'll notice over and over that they refer to Jesus as this man. A kind of dismissive uh, response to Jesus. And notice that they are beginning to talk amongst themselves about the reception that Jesus is having based on the rest of the crowds. Remember, the last thing was that the the authorities had confronted him over his teaching. But they confronted him, but they didn't do anything to stop him. And the people in Jerusalem began to reason, well, maybe it's because they know that this is the Christ. If he is, in fact, teaching the right kind of doctrine, if he is, in fact, authorized by the Father to teach as he claims, and the religious authorities, which we know are the gatekeepers of doctrine, we know that these are the credentialed members of leadership who guard the teaching of the church. And if they're not arresting them, if they're not saying something to them, then perhaps he is the Christ. 
Now, that could be one way of reading their questions. But I think that underneath it is a skepticism. Now, they're wondering why the authorities haven't arrested him. And maybe it is that he's the Christ. But in their minds, they're thinking, he can't really be the Christ. Because why? Well, because we know where this one is from. Meaning, we know that this Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, there's no Messiah that comes from Nazareth. Now, you recall back in, in John chapter 1, verse 43, that Nathaniel said something remarkably similar. When he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's out in the sticks. There's nothing there. And there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that the Messiah comes from Nazareth. We know that the Messiah comes from Bethlehem, the city of David. We know where he comes from. But even more than that, we have been speculating over the period of time. Probably this developed over the intertestamental period, that period between Malachi and when John the Baptist arrives on the scene, there was no prophetic witness. God was not revealing himself to the people of God. And during that time was a very fruitful and productive theological time. The Jews are still thinking about theology. They're still writing theology. It's not scripture, but they're wondering about the Messiah. And during that time, they came up with this idea and, and some of these books are actually contested. They may actually have been written during the time of the early church. But in the book of Enoch and in, and in 4th Ezra, they are speculating that the Messiah will appear out of nowhere. No one will know where he arrived from. He will just appear. He will not have built up a reputation over years of developing his character and then going to a school with a rabbi. But he will just show up out of nowhere He will appear and lead the people in a great victory against their oppressors, overthrowing um, their enemies and delivering them by, through their righteousness, ushering in the age that is to come, the resurrection. So they're speculating, they're saying, well, this can't be the Christ because we know that Jesus comes from Nazareth. He's Jesus ben Joseph of Nazareth. We know his father. We know where he's from. And the Messiah does not come from that place. So they're skeptical. And you'll notice over and over again, in fact, seven times throughout this scene, they know. They know, they know, they know. They're confident. They know. They have this knowledge. And Jesus throws it right back at them. You know, you think you know. Do you know? Notice Jesus' response. As he proclaimed, and this is shouts loudly, as he heralds forth, he says, you know me and you know where I come from. Now, we can take that as a statement. Okay, you know where I'm from. You know that I'm from Nazareth. You know that I have a certain location that I have based my ministry. You know my parents. You know my upbringing. But you could also read it as a question. You know me? And you know where I'm from? I have not come of my own accord. 
He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. You think you know. You think you know me. You've got me pinned down into the categories that you have so neatly crafted for yourself that I can't escape out of your Christ box. This is what the Christ will do and be. This is his origin. This is his identity. You think you know me. You've put me in this box. And yet, let me tell you something. You don't know me. You don't know me because you don't know my Father. I know my Father because I came from Him. You don't realize that I have a double origin. You don't realize that there's more to me than meets the eye. Remember, He cried out at the end of the last section, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. The problem is that you're looking at Jesus with the natural eyes. And you're seeing it's Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can't be the Christ. He doesn't fit. He's not qualified. But Jesus is saying you don't actually know because I have a father that you don't know. And the very purpose for which I was sent was to make him known to you. Remember, as good readers of the gospel, we already know this. We've already read the prologue. And yes, it's been years ago since we went through that portion. But John began, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, the divine Word, was with God in the very beginning. That's His origin. That's where He comes from. And He was God. That's His identity. And then further in in the same prologue, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Whose glory? Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. You see, the Word that was with God in the beginning, who was also God, came and He took on flesh and He dwelt among His people so that He can make the glory of the Father known. Jesus was there to reveal His origins, where He came from, because He perfectly knows the Father. And yet, notice their skepticism. We know, we know where you're from. With absolute confidence, we know. And Jesus says, you have no idea. And if you work backwards, they claim to know God, but they don't know Jesus. As the Christ, at least. And they can't know God, therefore. And therefore, they can't even know the truth, because the Father is truth. If you don't know Jesus as the Christ, then you cannot know God as Father, and therefore you cannot know the truth. It's attributed to Mark Twain, probably wasn't him, but he said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble, it's what you know for sure that just ain't so. They're so confident. They're so confident because they have carefully crafted their Christ box identity. 
And then they analyze Jesus based on that criteria. And he doesn't fit. Do we do that? Do we have our own identity that we try to impose upon Jesus? Jesus is the only way to the Father. He's the only way of salvation. And it seems... It seems unfair that he's so cryptic, but as the rest of the gospel unfolds, he begins to be more and more explicit. He says the exact same thing in John 14. He says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, I love Philip because we're we're just like Philip. Lord, Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, And the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Faith is not a wish in the dark. Think about all the signs that Jesus has done up to this point. Healing people, turning water into wine, demonstrating the goodness of the new creation. Restoring those who could not walk, who were lame feeding the 5,000. And John just gives us a few. There are hundreds and hundreds of miracles that Jesus did, all pointing to God in the flesh, dwelling among His people in great power, in majesty and glory, making known the Father. And of course, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. What we see here from these locals in Jerusalem is just rank unbelief. Despite all the evidence right in front of them, they're stuck on their their identity that they have crafted for this Jesus, which is not even found in the Old Testament. It's not even in Scripture. Yes, we know that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, and Jesus was before his flight to Egypt and before it became dangerous to even live there because of, of Herod. Had they done a little bit more genealogy, they would have uncovered that Jesus, in fact, was from Bethlehem. But that that wasn't the point. Because Jesus was from the Father and His identity was firmly fixed in that. And that He came from the Father. As I said, we're, we're very good at creating our own identities for Jesus and some of them are good, right? They're actually things that Jesus is and does. But, but if we use them to the exclusion of other aspects of the office of Christ, then we get this kind of uh, truncated view of who Jesus is. We get the lover boy Jesus, a big evangelical. You get the gentle and lowly Jesus in the, in the therapist's chair. Or you get the sword-wielding Jesus of the Christian nationalist. You get the missional Jesus who marches for justice. 
You get the confessional Jesus who carries around his BCO in the Westminster Confession. And then you get the bougie Jesus on Instagram. Jesus plus coffee. We are so good at crafting a persona that we love about Jesus. And there might even be good aspects of who the Christ is. But when we focus on that solely, and we make that only what Jesus is, we totally miss how profound and deep the person and work of Jesus Christ is. We miss aspects of His character. We miss parts of His work that He was always going to accomplish. You see, the locals in in Jerusalem reject Jesus as the Christ because He doesn't fit within their box. You've got to get out of the box. You've got to destroy those boxes. And you've got to let Christ be Christ. You've got to let Jesus be the Christ of faith. And their confidence, these people in Jerusalem, miss knowing God because they are so confident they know that Jesus is not the Christ. Where is Jesus going? If he began in the Father, where is he moving towards? And in the next scene, the Pharisees and the chief priests begin to grow agitated at Jesus. They're anxious because he continues to stir up the crowds, because he's teaching authoritatively, because he is refusing their presuppositions about who the Christ is should be and so they send authorities to arrest him now verse 33 through the end of actually through the end of of verse 39 is really what happens to jesus while the officers are on the way to arrest him and in the meantime jesus continues to teach he continues to preach the good news of the gospel and so he responds to, their, to the crowd and their uh, longing to have a Christ that they can identify with. And he says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And they're totally puzzled over this cryptic statement. And they wonder if he's going to teach in the Greek diaspora, probably to Jews. They're thinking that maybe he he's not popular here in Israel, so he'll go to the diaspora where all the Jews are scattered throughout the Greco-Roman world, and he'll preach and teach them. They can't figure out how he could go somewhere that they can't follow. They can't seek him and find him. And of course, their mistaken identity leads to mistaking conclusions about Jesus' mission, where he's going. They wanted a Messiah that would overthrow Roman oppression. A Messiah that would, would see the purity of their traditions and call the people back to covenant faithfulness. Of course, covenant faithfulness as they conceived of it, by obeying their rules and their traditions. And that by returning Israel to a state of purity, it would usher in the age to come, overthrowing the enemies of God. This would be um, a Christ that would purify the people and lead them to victory. And they totally misunderstood the mission of Christ. 
And that led them to miss the signs that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the Christ they had been waiting for. And and this whole section is just dripping with irony. Because in their misunderstanding, in their missing Jesus, it led them to put him to death. Which, by the way, was part of the plan all along. Notice Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. As he stands up on the day of Pentecost, he says this in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you catch that? You locals of Jerusalem, you remember the guy that you rejected as the Christ, you know, Jesus of Nazareth? Remember all of the works that he did and the great power in which he manifested that he was indeed the Christ. Do you also remember how you killed him? That was all a part of God's plan because that was his mission from the beginning. You mistook his identity. You also mistook what he was going to do, what he was going to accomplish, where he was going. The path that Jesus is walking on, the mission that he was sent by the Father to accomplish was to save the world. But it wasn't through a great victory in battle. It wasn't even by purifying the people, calling them back to faithfulness. That was actually John the Baptist's job. Rather, it was, it was to go back to his father. But the way back to his father was through the cross. The way for Jesus to accomplish his mission was to die. That's why he came. That was the very purpose, the definite plan, the foreknowledge of God that led him to lay down his life for the good of the whole world, to restore all things. And just as we try to make Jesus into a Christ of our own design, so also do we try to get Jesus' mission to be of our own making. And we have seen this throughout the ages. Jesus is a good teacher. He is here to be an example for how we are to live sacrificially, like an elder brother, Uniting us all in the family of God. The fatherhood of God. The brotherhood of all men. That's liberalism teaching us a different mission than the one Jesus came to accomplish. There are two main categories that we end, we end up falling into when it comes to creating our own mission for Jesus. Either we over-spiritualize the mission denigrating all of creation. We see this, this crop up in the early church and the, and the Gnostics. And really, all Jesus came to do is free us from matter, from this filthy earth, so that we can be disembodied, filled with knowledge. But we, we never really escape this Gnostic tendency. It's alive and well in dispensationalism and pietism and Reformed two-kingdom theology. 
These things all devalue, they over-spiritualize Jesus' mission, which is the restoration of all things. Jesus didn't come just to, to, to save souls. He came to save all of his creation. How far did the curse spread? Did it not touch the trees and the weeds? Did it not affect the animals? Did it not affect all of the cosmic realm that God is creator over? It did. And when Christ died on the cross and when he, what he is accomplishing right now is not just the saving of souls, but the restoration of all of creation, returning it to its glory and elevating it to a place of blessing. But when we over-spiritualize the mission, we, why would we care about this creation? Why would we steward the good gifts that God has given us? Why would we even build institutions like schools? And why would we care about government? Why not just go hide? Or why not make everything that the church is to do evangelism? Now, I don't want to, I don't want to denigrate that there is a spiritual aspect to our mission. But we are embodied people, body and soul. And God is saving both. And how does that affect how we live our Christian life? The other ditch that we fall on is to over-realize the mission. We try to create utopia now. Through our efforts at restoring all of creation, we end up usually missing the gospel. And it becomes all about social justice over faithful witness to what Jesus has done. See, the problem with missing the identity of Jesus is we often confuse the mission of Jesus as well. Jesus has come to reverse the curse as far as it is found. We also change how, how that mission is accomplished, right? We empty it from... The death of Jesus. Jesus' path to go back to his father, it didn't start with glory. It wasn't by winning renown throughout all the world and being recognized by uh, the whole Greco-Roman emperor as Lord. That's not what happened. Jesus won glory by dying on a cross. He triumphed over his enemies in his own Death, And if we change the mission, we'll often change how the mission is accomplished. We talked about this in Sunday school. If the message that Paul preached is Christ crucified, the means must match the method, the message. We cannot preach a Christ crucified by bringing glory to ourselves. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, by eloquent speech, by wisdom, by loftiness, by our persuasive abilities. And it comes, the message must come packaged. It must come preached in the same way that Jesus won His glory, and that's through death. Our ministries must be carried out in that way. And we talked a lot about that in, in the first few verses. Jesus is going back to the Father because He was sent from the Father. And they don't see it. They don't see it because they only see with their eyes. They only see Jesus by his appearance. But not all of them. 
The scenes definitely portray unbelief over and over again, but there is a glimmer of belief, maybe. Notice in verse 31, Yet many of the people believed in him. And they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Doesn't he fit all of the marks of what Christ looks like? And John clues us in, interpreting their statement beforehand by saying, Some of them believed. Some of them did recognize his his identity. They're wondering, what else would the Christ do? What else would he be? Where else would he go? What would he accomplish more than this man has already done? We see in Jesus' statement a warning. There's going to come a time for this crowd in Jerusalem where they can't find him. He's going to be shrouded in darkness. He's going to be gone. That same warning is for all of us. Think about the parable of the ten virgins. Jesus tells this parable. There's ten virgins, and and some of them have waited to burn their oil. They, They didn't use it all up. Others were wasteful. They didn't prepare. They weren't watching for the bridegroom, and they used all their oil. And then it begins to be announced that the bridegroom is on the way. And and they said, give us some of your oil that you've kept. And, And they said, no, we can't because the bridegroom's here. And they have to leave and go and purchase oil. And then when they come back, the gate is already shut and they can't get in. You see, there... There's only a moment. It feels like we have all of life that we can make a decision. Is Jesus the Christ? I've got time. I've got time to decide. I can weigh. I can weigh the options. I think I can think about the pros and cons. I've got lots of time. But you don't know that your life might not be required of you today. The day of decision is always today. It's never tomorrow. Jesus is warning them. There's going to come a time and you have to make a decision about who I am. Am I the Christ? Will you respond in faith? Will you stop seeing by appearances and begin to look with the eyes of faith? Or will you turn and, and leave? There was so much debate over the identity of Jesus. But what mattered the most was faith. If you had faith, you can see Jesus as he, as more than he appeared. Without faith, you only saw Jesus as he appeared on the surface. And that's the same dichotomy that we face today. Despite our efforts to divide ourselves and identify with all of our special interest groups, wearing the right clothing, listening to the doing the right things. It doesn't matter. It only comes down to one thing that separates us, our perception of Jesus. Do we see Him as the Christ, the Son of God who came to reveal the Father and return to Him through His death, resurrection, and ascension? Or do we see Him as just Jesus, a teacher maybe, who lived 2,000 years ago, who taught and lived the good life, but nothing 
more. My prayer is that you would judge Jesus not by appearance, but with right judgment. And that in seeing him, you might come to believe that he is the Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, open our eyes that we be not blinded by the standards of this world that would put Christ in a box that would cause us to misidentify him, that would lead us in the, in the wrong mission, that would cloud our judgment to keep us from seeing your glory shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, open our hearts, Father, to receive Jesus and to believe in him so that we may have life in him. For we pray this in Jesus' name and amen.